0: hear and take part of here this morning and Lord as we continue to worship here in a moment as Rebecca reads um, your word and we worship in that as Jonathan um, brings the message that you've crafted in his heart this morning um, that you would soften our hearts to receive it that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see um, the things that uh, the Holy Spirit would be revealing to us as we leave here today knowing you more and serving you and loving you um, in a deeper way. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen.
1: Will you please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Our reading for today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. You can find it on page 982 of the Pew Bibles. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, awesome. Good to have you guys back. It's good to be back. Thank you for allowing me a break last week. I was coming off the heels of... Being able to spend a week um, down at uh, the seminary where I'm working on my Master of Divinity. And so it was a blessing to have uh, Pastor Tom come in and preach to you guys from the last part of Philippians chapter 3. So, where are we at in the book of Philippians? Um, if you will notice, we're, we're, we're winding this thing down. We've been studying the book of Philippians now for close to three months, and we're, we're coming into the waning stages of, of seeing how Paul is going to land this letter just like a pilot lands a plane. Um, he's beginning his descent, he's, he's ramping down, he's, he's lining up for the, the runway, and before he gets to that, those final things that he's going to talk to them that we'll look at next week, how God has been providing for him and for the Philippians, <clears throat> he's going to do something today through this text that is extremely familiar to us. If you remember Philippians, if you look up there, you can see what we've been doing is operating under this idea that we are all heavenly citizens. Paul's using this language in the book of Philippians. And as citizens, as the Philippians were citizens of Rome because they lived in this city that was a Roman outpost, Paul was taking a familiar phraseology and he was turning to them and he was pressing on to them, not only are you citizens of Rome, but you are citizens of heaven. The gospel's been applied to you. We see this language in Philippians 1.27. Last week we saw it from what Tom was preaching to us. 3.20. But not only is Paul pressing on to the Philippians, yes, it is true that you are heavenly citizens, and the buck just stops there. But he is saying, because you are heavenly citizens, there is a right way in which you are to conduct your lives. And that's why we came up with that phrase right there, Philippians. This book is a citizen's guide to city living. The book of Philippians smacks of practicality. He's constantly talking about because you are in Jesus, you are to live this way. Because the gospel has been applied to your heart, you are to think this way. Because you are a child of God, it is right for you not to do these things. It is good and right for you to do these things. And we've been seeing this over and over. And when we come to Philippians chapter 4. When we look at these verses 1 through 9, Paul is doing this exact same thing. He's going to urge, he's going to exhort, he's going to press, he's going to beseech these believers to act and think in certain ways. And really what he's going to do is he's going to give just one blanket statement. And we see that in verse 1 where he's going to say, I want you guys to stand firm in these things, to think this way way and we're going to explain what is he talking about there and then he's going to turn and he's going to ride on the heels of this exhortation to stand firm we're going to say well to stand firm in what and Paul gives us just like in a bullet point list you need to stand firm in this and this and this and this and this these are right things for us to press into as we think as we act as we live so as we get there before we get there I'm going to pray for us Again, you've heard me say this before, and I think it's a good practice for us as a body of believers, is to be active prayers. So as I'm praying for you, don't just merely hear the words of me praying for you, but I'm going to ask that you in turn would pray for me, pray for one another, that the words that are coming from my mouth would be infused with the Spirit, and that the Spirit would lead and guide you and I in correction, in rebuke, in areas that, that we need it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the Father. In your goodness, we delight. In your holiness, we rejoice. Our aim this morning is to hear you speak to us from the Scriptures. We acknowledge the Scriptures' authority over us because the Scriptures are direct revelation from God the Father Himself. Father, lead us to rejoice always in who you are. Lead us to shine out gentleness to everyone. Guide us to kill anxiety with prayer and thanksgiving. God, we desire to walk daily with the knowledge that the peace of God guards our hearts and mind as we cast our cares upon the Lord. Jesus, you are good. Salvation is found in you. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, lead our hearts to glory in this truth. Lead us to show this truth with words and with actions in all areas of influence that we may have. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way among your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this is sort of, right, can we still call this the 4th of July, right, we're a couple days later, it's 4th of July weekend, right, so we're, we're um, big 4th of July celebrators. Tara, my wife, loves loves fireworks, and so when fireworks are around, it's just, it's good in the Davis, Davis household. Um, so on top of 4th of July and our love for fireworks, I'm also a huge lover of World War II history, so recently, there's been a lot of World War II stuff floating around. Um, if you've ever seen any of these, you can go and read the books. There's a guy named Stephen Ambrose who wrote a book called Band of Brothers, and that was turned into a 10-part miniseries. There's other guys, These same guys, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, created a miniseries called The Pacific based upon guys... Books like Lecky, um, Robert Lecky, E.B. Sledge, their accounts of the what they did in the Pacific theater of operations when it came to the actions that they were called upon at that time to go and fight for freedom. And as you watch these things, I just was recently watching that miniseries, The Pacific. Um, as these Marines were called to hop from island to island, fighting against the Axis powers, it. Never failed that this scenario would always take place. The soldiers are lining up as Marines, they're getting into their transport carriers, and as they're making their way towards the beach front, the beachhead that they're going toward, there's always like a look of fear on their face. They know what they're going into. Artillery's going off, mortars are going off, machine guns are firing. But you always had that look of, like, th- this is very serious. There's something very, very big going on here. We're part of something bigger, but there was something very individual that was going on in the midst of this. But then you, you would pan around, and sometimes they would show either the officer who was in charge or the non commissioned officer, the sergeants who were in charge. There was always this look of grim resolve of, like, they feel the weight of what it means for what they're about ready to step into. Whether they poured out the side or whether they're in Normandy, and you're talking about on D-Day and the front would load and they would just come barreling out, these infantrymen, and they're storming the beach. I mean, literally, it's just going nuts. Everything's exploding. Guns are going off. Things are shooting in the air. And what you see when you read accounts in the books and you even see it within those miniseries, if you've seen those you go and you read the accounts of these infantry men where in the midst of just stepping into that almost always there was a panic that would be stricken amongst these men as they're just hitting the deck there's people dying stuff's going nuts but when you read the individual accounts of these people there's almost always this refrain some NCO some sergeant some officer some lieutenant would come along And with resolve, he would rally the troops, and he's just screaming and yelling, you've got to get off the beach, follow me, move it. He's just going, and then what he would do is he would encourage these guys. They would rally around him. You're going to die if you stay here on the beach. You need to get off the beach. You need to move. You need to move. You need to get off. You need to go. You need to go. And time and time again, whether it was Okinawa, whether it was Peleliu, whether it was Iwo Jima, whether you're talking about Army in Normandy on D-Day, there's always these accounts of these sergeants, of these NCOs, of these officers who would just rise to the occasion and in the midst of the thick of it, they would say, you need to stand fast. You need to move now. Go, 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 go. And he's exhorting them to move. And as we come to the last part of Philippians chapter 4, Paul is doing something very similar. He's coming to these people and saying, listen, this is what it looks like to live like Christians. Do this, do this, go, think this way, act this way, think this way, act this way, do these things, don't do these things. It's like an NCO in the military. Paul comes along, and he's not doing really anything different, right? We've been talking about this. He's been saying these same sort of things throughout the whole letter, but it just comes to a head right now because he's actually going to reach into the Philippian body of believers and say there are two people specifically that these things apply to. And what he does is he turns and he talks to two women in the church that were at heads, at odds with each other. They They were bumping heads. He's going to call them to stand firm, think this way. And he's going to press on to them a theme that we've been hearing throughout the book of Philippians. You are to be united, mainly united because you are both gospel-believing women. And then on the heels of that, he's going to turn and say, not only are you to stand firm in unity because you are in the gospel, but there is a right way for you to stand firm, just in general, right Christian living. There's a right way for you to live your life because of who you are in Christ Jesus. So when we look through the letter here, what we're going to see in in these verses here, 1 through 9, Paul is going to press on to this, this truth. That heavenly citizens are to stand firm in unity and right Christian living. Heavenly citizens are to stand firm in unity and right Christian living. And they are to stand firm... We're going to see in verse 1, this is going to be a transition verse where he's going to basically wrap up all of these things that he's been saying from the very beginning of the letter. And like a hinge swings on itself, this verse acts like a hinge to where he wraps up everything that's gone before and then he's going to swing simultaneously into the wrapping up and the closing of his letter. And in so doing, he's going to call Euodia and Syntyche, these two women in the Philippian church, to stand firm in unity. You'll see that in verses 2 and 3. And then you're going to see that he, he broadens it out a bit. And then he says, well, you guys also need to stand firm not only in unity, but you need to stand firm in right Christian living. And that's going to be verses 4 through 9. So look in your Bibles here. Look in your copy of Scripture. iPhone, iPad, black book, black hardback Bible in front of you, your own copy of Scripture. Look there in verse 1. Paul says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So what we've said here is this. We we see this idea of standing firm. What Paul is talking about is there is a right way to act, a right way to think, and the way to do this is to stand firm. You are to stand firm thus in the Lord. You are to stand firm in this way. Well, the question then becomes, well, in what way? Like, what is he talking about here? And as we've said, this is very much a hinged verse because what he's doing is saying, everything that I've been pressing into your laps from chapter one, verse one, up to chapter four, verse one, these are all things worthy of you standing firm. And this isn't like me coming and going, well, if you sort of feel like doing some of these things, that's okay. No, he's saying, no, you are to stand firm in this way. You are to think this way. And he pours out endearing, endearing terms to them. He says, listen, you are my brothers. You are my beloved. You, you are the ones whom I love. You are the ones who I long for. You are my joy. You are my crown. And what he's doing is saying, listen, I'm not telling you these things because it is just merely something I have to say. Like it's just my apostolic duty just to sort of say these things. Like God told me to do it. I guess I have to do it. I really don't feel this way. That's not what's going on at all. But what he's doing is saying, listen, I love you. I want you to grow and be more like Jesus. You're my joy. You're my crown. Stand firm in these things. Think this way. You're to stand firm as citizens who are eagerly waiting for Christ. You are to stand firm in following the apostolic example of Paul, of Timothy, of Epaphroditus. You are to stand firm in conducting your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, And this is in stark contrast to those who preach from envy and rivalry all the way back in Philippians chapter 1 from those who are the opponents in Philippi, bringing affliction and bringing suffering to the Philippians merely because the Philippians were gospel citizens. You're to stand firm against the Judaizers who are promoting a false gospel. A couple weeks ago we talked about how the Judaizers wanted to make the Gentiles Jews first, By circumcision, then they could become Christians. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, no, that is adding something to the gospel. You can't do that. You're to stand firm against that false gospel teaching. And they're to stand firm against the enemies of the cross. That's what Tom talked about last time. There's people who are going to come around and say, you need to follow me, man. Follow my example. And Paul says, some of those people are just direct, decided Enemies of the cross, we are not to follow them. Stand firm in these things. But at the same time, Paul, like a hinge, turns there and says, not only are you to stand firm in these things, but stand firm in this way. And then he turns and he casts his gaze, and you can almost see him in his mind's eye, with news from Epaphroditus that there's two women within the church who are at odds with each other, Euodia and Syntychea. And so he's going to say, we need to stand firm. You and Philippi need to stand firm in this way, especially in regard to Yodi and Syntyche, especially in regard to the Philippians as a whole, but we need to stand firm in these things. Paul was calling the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord, and then he doesn't leave it like that. He turns and he tells us what he wants us to do, and that's what we see in Philippians 2, chapter 4, verse 2, verse 3. How are we to stand firm? What way, Paul, do you want us to stand firm besides everything you've said before? What are the other things you want to press on to us? He says unity. Look in your copy of scripture there, verses two, verses three. I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntachi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he turns right on the heels of the way that he's entreating, he's calling them to stand firm and then he turns and he says, I entreat you, Odi, I I entreat Syntyche, I, I beseech them, I urge them. This is more than just, again, this compl- it's not just a complacent word that he's coming along and saying. He's like, listen, I, you know, I understand there's some disunity there, but I mean, I guess it's okay if it lingers. I mean, it'd really maybe be better if it wasn't there. And he's that's not the heart of Paul here. He's saying this: when people from the outside look into the community of gospel believers, the community of Jesus Christ lovers, we are not to be marked by disunity. That speaks a false gospel. When disunity marks a church, it doesn't matter how emphatic your words are, your actions are constantly speaking louder than your words. And this is what he's addressing. To the Philippian believers, listen, you are to stand firm in this way. And he says, I'm entreating Euodia, I'm urging Euodia, I'm urging Syntyche. You guys are to agree in the Lord. You are to think this way. You are to be of the same mind, which is the language that is going on there with. Agree in the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul's been saying before. If you look back again in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's saying like this, you need to think this way. Be of this mind. Have the same mind. Have the mind of Christ. It's constantly Paul saying it is right for us to look to Christ and go see what Christ did, think this way. See what Christ thought, think this way. See what others who are mimicking Christ, how they are thinking and how they are acting, you are to think and do the same thing. In verse 3, Paul turns And he talks about this man, this person called True Companion. Now, we don't know who he is, but we are to assume that the Philippians would know who this is. And so he says to this person, who would be reading this letter along with all the Philippians in the congregation, he turns to this person and says, you, True Companion, you who are like-minded like me, you who are equipped to be able to handle this, I ask you also to do this thing. To do what? To help these women. To come alongside them, to aid them. And what's beautiful about this is he is pressing unity through the channel of community, right? So, what he doesn't do is go, hey, Yodia, get your act together, Sentaki is right. What he doesn't say is, hey, Sentaki, I beseech you, get things going in the right direction here, and says nothing to Yodia. What he doesn't do is just merely say, hey, Odia, hey, Sintaki, get your problems worked out. Stop having disunity. Go at it, figure it out, and then just let it go. No, he says, I urge you, and I urge you, and true companion, I ask you to come along and help them in these urgings to work this out. He's pressing gospel unity through the channel of community. Gospel unity happens in community. When there is disunity between believers, it's not merely good enough for you to just come and figure it out together. It is to be done within the realm of community. And Paul is teaching us from this thing. The companion was to come along. This true companion was to do something to help these women. These women have labored side by side. See, this is what I love here, because when I was reading this, I asked the question, why didn't Paul just say, I entreat Euodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord? Hey, guy, help him out. Out. You know, got, got that off a chest. Done. Like, wh- why all these other phrases heaped on... Help these women who, who, by the way, have labored side by side with me in the gospel, who, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, who have also labored side by side with me in the gospel. Hey, by the way, all their names are in the book of life. It's like, like, what in the world is that about? Like, why just piling all these phrases up? Why didn't he just leave it short, sweet, and simple? Well, one is because he's Paul, <laughs> and Paul loves to heap phrases on top of phrases. But the other thing is this. He's helping us see that these are actually believers, what he's not saying is, hey, there's some unbelievers hanging out in your midst. Tell them to get their act together. What he's saying is these are people who have had the gospel applied to their heart. Newsflash, as believers, we are going to have problems amongst each other. I'm going to say something, and you're going to get upset. You're going to do something, and I'm going to get, I'm going to get angry. And what we could do is go, hey, get yourself right. When you get yourself right, I'll engage. Paul says, No. What we could do is go, hey, you and me, over here in the corner, let's work this thing out. We need to figure this out so we can come back together. Paul says, no. We are to do that, but not merely that. We're to do it in community. Gospel unity is a thing worthy of standing firm in. Paul was calling the Philippians to stand firm in unity. Look down at verses 4 through 9. So we have that head there, that 4, chapter 4, verse 1, that phrase, stand firm thus in the Lord, stand firm in this way, in the Lord, have the same mind, think this way. What way, Paul? Well, the first way that you need to stand firm, the first way you need to think, the first way you need to agree in the Lord is by standing in gospel unity. The second way that you are to stand firm is in right christian living you are to stand firm in right christian living and i need to say this again i'll say it here in a little bit whenever paul comes and you read the commands of scripture whenever paul comes and he gives us the imperatives of the scripture it's never do these things so you can be right with the father right it's never that never ever ever It's always because you are right with the Father through Jesus Christ and because your identity is, I was a sinner, now I'm right with the Father, and because I'm right with the Father and I have peace with Him, now I am to go and work these things out. To put the cart before the horse, to do good works in order to be right with the Father is damnable. Because you're going to stand before God one day going, didn't you see all the good stuff I was doing? I listened to Pastor John. I was doing the things that he said to do. But Christ is going to say, but you were doing it in order to get right with the Father. That's works. That is you trying to be right through works. Works, righteousness leads to hell. But the commands of Scripture are not to be tossed out the window. The commands of Scripture lead us and conform us and take us along the Christian journey, molding us, guiding us, shaping us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. And this is what Paul's doing again, once again, in the book book of Philippians. We are to stand firm in right Christian living. Verses 4 through 9. With this call to stand firm in unity... Addressed to two specific women in the Philippian church, Paul turns his attention to this list of exhortations. These exhortations come at us in a a bullet list format, where each exhortation has merit on its own standing, but Paul is also saying something more grand with these statements in regard to right Christian living. See, when you look at verses 4 through 9, what you see are these things like, hey, rejoice. Hey, be reasonable. Hey, don't be anxious. Hey, in everything, let your prayers and your requests be made known to God. Hey, do this, do this, do this. And what we're to do is look and go, okay, he's giving us singular things to think about, singular things to strive for. But what we're not to do is just abstract these, these single imperatives, these single commands and go, well, one doesn't somehow play on the other. They are singular in nature, but when you add them all up, Paul is pressing a more grand, a more beautiful truth onto our laps. So let's look at these in individual, and then we'll, we'll apply them as we look at them together. So look at verse 4 there in your copy of Scripture. What does it say? It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So if you know anything about the book of Philippians, like these are the money verses here, right? These are the coffee mug verses that we're about ready to work through. Like if you've got a Christian T-shirt, if you've got any sort of Christian paraphernalia, I'm guaranteeing you, you're reading one of these somewhere. So there's an air of familiarity to them. But what is dangerous with familiarity is we often read them and just check them off as if I've got this figured out. Rejoice in the Lord? Man, I've read that one a bunch of times. Got it. It's like, man, I don't know if that's really the case. Paul is pressing this idea of rejoice, 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 rejoice. Over and over and over again, many call the book of Philippians a letter concerned about rejoicing. And here again, in this short little verse, Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul comes barreling out of the gate, and he gives us a a double rejoicing. You are to rejoice in the Lord. And I will say it again. You are to rejoice. You are to rejoice. You are to rejoice. And usually in Scripture, when you get this double doubling up of words, it carries the idea of emphatic. You see this in the Old Testament, not so much in the New, but if you wanted to talk about something that was really gold, it would be in the original language, it would be this thing is gold, gold. If something was really deep, it would be like, this is a pit pit. If something is really holy, this is why you see nothing else described in threes like you do, except when talking about the holiness of God. He is holy, holy, holy. How holy is God? He's holy upon holy upon holy. And when you come to this scripture verse here, you're getting this same sort of idea coming through. You're not only just to rejoice, you're to rejoice, rejoice. He's really pressing something emphatic upon the Philippian believers here. The Philippians are to rejoice, but not just merely rejoice. They are to rejoice how? They are to rejoice always. See, rejoicing always isn't rooted in your circumstances. Paul didn't say, hey, when things are hunky-dory for you, that's when you can be fired up. When that pay raise comes, that's the only time that you can rejoice. When When you get that thing you want, when you wake up and the cup of coffee is just that perfect temperature then that's when you can rejoice. He's saying you are to rejoice always. Always is a word that means always. Not contingent upon when you feel like it. Rejoicing always isn't rooted in your circumstances. Rejoicing is independent of your circumstances when it is rejoicing always. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times regardless of what may come your way. We have to remember, Paul was saying this from prison. Yeah? It wasn't like Paul was in Caesarea Philippi in the Mediterranean coast, margarita in hand lounging on the beach. Yeah, guys, I know it's rough for you. Rejoice always. He's not doing that. He's writing from a Roman prison cell. You can go read the litany of things. We've said it many times through the book of Philippians. He's, he's the one who's received 40 lashes minus one three times. has been shipwrecked and has been stoned, left for dead, etc., etc., etc. If you'll remember, he lived this out in front of the Philippians in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is the account of the Philippian church being planted. Part of the way the Philippian church was planted was upon the suffering and affliction of Paul and Silas's back. Do you remember the account of the Philippian jailer? What's going on? Preaching the gospel? People didn't like it? Threw him in jail? What did Paul do? Did Paul go in the corner and curl up and cry like a baby and suck his thumb? No. Paul and Silas were singing songs and praising God out loud to the point where everyone was hearing it. He was rejoicing always. And the Philippians would know this because the Philippian jailer was converted through this. And so the Philippian jailer, who is going to be reading this whenever someone maybe who's new to the church comes along and reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah, right, Paul. Always you don't know my situation, the flipping jailer could pipe up and be like, uh, listen to this. And he can pray, like, I have seen with my eyes and heard with my ears, which is going to be the very thing he's going to press onto them later. Is, listen, you've seen me think this way. You have seen me act this way. You have heard me say these things. My actions and my teachings come together. They line up perfectly. And you have seen me say and live and act and think and do these things. This is not beyond the realm of possibility. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, not only are you to rejoice in the Lord always, but what is another avenue that they are to stand firm in in regard to right Christian living? It is this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Reasonableness can also carry this idea of gentleness let your gentleness be known to everyone NIV says gentleness New American Standard says gentle spirit Holman Christian says graciousness ESV says reasonableness it's what's involved in this idea is the willingness listen the willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to others To be reasonable, to have a gentle spirit, to be marked as a person who's marked by graciousness is to be marked as a person who is willing to yield your own personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to others. It is easy to display this quality towards persons you like. It's easy to do this. I like this guy. Of course I'm going to be gentle to him. But what about the guy who's mocking me and jeering me at work? What about my neighbor who would rather spit on me than shake my hand because I'm a follower of Jesus? What about the boss who has either implicitly or explicitly told you, I don't care how good you are, but because you're a Christian, you're not getting a raise. It's hard to be gentle to that person. But Paul does not leave that open to interpretation. Let your reasonableness, gentleness, graciousness, this gentle spirit be known to who? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone is sort of like the word always. Always means always. Everyone means everyone. It's easy to display this quality towards persons you like. But it is admittedly harder to do toward everyone. When Paul is calling out the Philippians to be reasonable, to be gentle toward everyone, it includes the Philippian believers for sure. But it also includes wrongly motivated Christians that we saw in Philippians chapter 1, persecutors towards the ends of Philippians chapter 1, some of Philippians chapter 2. It's also to be towards false teachers from Philippians chapter 3. It's to be toward everyone. So it leads us to these two questions. Why does it need to be known? Okay, that's great. Good. Let it be known to everyone. Why? Why must it be known? Why does our gentleness need to be known? I think it's this reason right here. Gentleness is to be known among believers for responding with gentleness is the true display of Christ-like character. If you go read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul launches out with this. When you see Christ, when you saw Christ, he was marked by gentleness and meekness. When you think, act, live, do, speak, react in these ways, you are imaging Jesus. That's one way. Leads us to the other question. So not, not only are we to make it known, why do we need to make it mo- known? Because we image Jesus, but why does it need to be known to everyone? Like, why can't we just let our graciousness, when we image Jesus, just be known to people that we like? Like, why everyone? Man, Paul, I mean, you just broke, like, why? I could have done this, Paul, if it was just with the people I like. Why to everyone? I think it's for this reason. I love what Peter O'Brien says this. When displaying gentleness to more than believers, it prevents the church from being too preoccupied with its own interests and is a reminder that the church's setting in the world should summon it to a life of winsome influence on its pagan neighbors. Did you hear what he was saying there? The reason we make our gentleness known to everyone is because when we do this, it comes in like a missile. And what it does is it blows up the idea that we are only to be gentle towards one another. Because if I like you guys, hopefully you guys like me. And as we interact toward gentleness one toward another, it would be incredibly easy for us to just turn to navel-gazing, and just to look into ourselves and go, I like you, you like me, I'm helping you, you're helping me, and there's just a bunch of me, 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 and you and me, and me, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then what we do is, before we know it, we're just a church that's existing and serving only ourselves. And the Christian life isn't meant to be us merely serving and existing for ourselves. I think O'Brien nails it said when he says this, when we are to let our reasonableness, our gentleness be known to everyone, it is a reminder that the church's setting is in the world. The world outside these walls, your unbelieving friends are not marked by gentleness. Often. They can be. But as a way of life empowered by the Spirit of God, they are not because they don't have the Spirit of God. And when you let your reasonableness be made known to everyone... It's a reminder that the church's setting is in the world and it should summon it to a life of winsome influence on its pagan neighbors. Would you like to have influence amongst your friends in regard to the gospel? Don't be a jerk. Be gentle. It'll throw their world upside down. When your neighbor comes to you and wants to rain down fire and just dump on you, you can be a jerk. You might one-up them. You might outwit them. You might get the last word in but you're not going to lead him to Jesus. You will lead him to Jesus when you show him Jesus, and you will show him Jesus when you act like Jesus, and you act like Jesus when you're gentle. Verse 6. So on the heels of this, what do we have? We have this little phrase he drops there at the end of verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Hey, the Lord is at hand. It's like, whoa, man, all right. Are we getting all, you know, Book of Revelation here? What are we talking about? What do you mean the Lord, the Lord is at hand? Right? And I think Paul, what he's doing is he's, again, giving us a little hinge verse clause. Because what he's saying basically is this. It's, it's, it's what Jesus did. He gave parables saying, listen, there was a master who had his servants. The master went away. The servants would just completely do everything opposite of what the master wanted. Then the master would come back and he would just rain down fire on these servants. And it was meant to teach us a lesson. That this, that the nearness of the master is meant to goad us into doing what is good and what is right. Since the Lord is near, this becomes a powerful incentive for the Philippian believers, for us as believers here at Delta Church, to respond rightly and do the type of Christian living Paul is calling them toward. It's a gentle little reminder. He isn't trying to manipulate them. He isn't trying to somehow persuade them with some like some um, some shady schemes. But what he's saying is this: Listen. When the nearness of Christ is on your mind, what, what you do is you think and you act in certain ways. It's, it's like this. When you go to work on Monday and you find out the boss is on vacation, what do you usually do? Let's have church and be honest here. You don't work as hard. The boss is away. The workers are at play. I mean, it's, just, it's good times, right? I mean, because the boss isn't there. The farness of away of the boss usually means the workers go, we can relax a little bit. What Paul is doing, I think, is touching on something that's common to most people. What he's trying to do is saying, listen, when you somehow slip into this easily believed idea that, man, God's like, he's just far away. The Lord, yeah, he's not near. He's not near. We drift into that idea of, wow, this is, we don't have to be like, yeah. Rejoice in the Lord, be reasonable? I guess so. Maybe when I feel the nearness of God or like whenever I I think he might be close by, maybe I'll think that way, but he's saying no. The Lord is near. This isn't a bully statement. It is clearly meant as encouragement. See, the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, they are to rejoice and be gentle-minded. Yet there's also this sense when it says the Lord is near, that his nearness is to lead them away from anxiety. And that's exactly where he goes in verse 6. The Lord is near. Think this way. Act this way. It's like the boss who's working in the, in the workroom. We're supposed to, to think a certain way because God is here. And we want to please God. This isn't a bully statement. This isn't to lead us in the direction of going, I'm doing these things out of fear because the boss might fire me. It's no, because the Lord is near our desires to honor and please the Lord. There's that sense of it, but there's also the sense of this. When we walk yoked to Christ as believers... There is this sense in which the Lord is near. He's walking alongside with me. He knows what I'm experiencing. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows the good. And this would be incredibly impactful for the Philippian believers. Because remember, life is not easy for them right now. Affliction and oppression and suffering and false teaching is seeking to creep its way into the church. And what Paul is saying is, listen, the Lord is near. He knows these things. So listen, because this is true, don't be anxious. Jesus knows what's going on in your life. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about some things. Do not be anxious about anything. Always means always. Everyone means everyone. Anything means anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says don't be anxious. This is to assume that they were operating out of anxiety. But Paul calls them to stop. What's their source of anxiety? Afflictions, oppression, suffering. Paul urges these things to be put to death. He recalls Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. It was our response of scripture reading that we read up here this morning that big chunk of matthew chapter 6 23 24 through 34 23 34 Don't be anxious. The Father knows. Listen, if he's clothing the flowers in the field, if he's clothing the grass, if if these things are more taken care of than we could ever possibly imagine, how much more important are you than they? It's a lesser to greater argument. If God is taking care of blades of grass that I'm going to go and cut down tomorrow when I mow my yard, you are intrinsically of more value than a blade of grass. Christ knows you. He will take care of you. So then how are we to react? If we're not to be anxious, then how should I act? Well, he says so. In everything, let your requests be made known to God. We are to do this with prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. This idea of requests and prayer and supplication, these words are are synonymous. There are just three ways that Paul is saying that we are to be marked by prayer. And not just merely prayer, like in a begrudging way, but prayer marked with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should accompany all Christian praying as the one praying acknowledges that whatever God sends is for his good. See, when we come to this verse, I think this is the big deal here where Paul's building up to. He says this, don't be anxious. Everything in your world is telling you to be anxious, but please hear this, do not be anxious. Well, Paul, what are we supposed to do right now? What are we supposed to do if we're not supposed to be anxious? And Paul says this, think this way, in everything, let your request be made known to God. How am I to let my request be made known to God? By prayer and by supplication. Not with a begrudging heart, but with a heart of thanksgiving. Going, God knows what's going on. God, thank you that you know what's going on. I'm praying to you right now because you know what's going on. This is good news. This is the prescription for killing anxiety. Did you hear what he said? You, Deltonians, have reasons to be anxious. Don't you? I do. And we can be consumed with anxiety. But what are we to do in those moments? We don't freak out. We turn because the Lord is near. We realize Christ knows. Bend your knee in prayer and go, Father, you know what's going on. Anxiety kills joy. Prayer kills anxiety. And we are to be soldiers who pick up the double-edged sword of prayer and wield it daily and wield it daily and wield it daily against anxiety that seeks to destroy the joy that we have in Christ. This is Paul's prescription for killing anxiety. Anxiety is killed When we pray, and it restores rejoicing. This is what I love about verse 7 the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise. This isn't a, I sure hope it works out this way. This is a promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, a peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And remember that this is not contingent upon if your prayers are answered or not. This is a prayer. This is a promise that's rooted in you praying with thanksgiving, which in turn kills anxiety. Now, you may pray and get your prayer answered. This promise is for you. You may pray and not get your prayer answered. This promise is still for you. The truthfulness of this promise is not rooted in whether or not your prayer gets answered. The truthfulness of this promise is rooted in this fact, that you are praying. Praying rooted in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving rooted in God is sovereign. He is near. He knows what's going on. This is the good news of this verse. It comes with this idea, the peace of God. There is this idea of vertical peace. We have Peace with God because of the gospel work, the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. There's also this idea of horizontal peace. We have peace because we have peace with God. We can experience this peace, know this peace in this life. It is possible. The peace of God that comes from the God of peace. We're going to see that phrase there coming up in verse 9. When we turn away from this phrase and we look at verses 8 and 9, I love what Paul does here because he goes into like this extravagant list. But what is this purpose of this list? The purpose of this list is to guide us along in our thinking. He's going to say this. You need to think about these things. So you, you want to think about everything that is leading you down the road of anxiety. You're not to think about these things. Let me tell you what you are to do. You are to pray. But if you're not to be actively thinking about these things, what are you to actively be thinking about? And this is what verses 8 and 9 do. They come in and say this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if anything is excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, you are to actively think about these things. Everything in your world is going to say, don't think about these things. Think about everything that will lead you to the path of anxiety. Paul comes in under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, do not actively be thinking about everything that will lead you down the path of anxiety. Be actively thinking about these things. Things, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And not only are we to be thinkers in this way, but we are to be doers as well. And that's what we see in verse 9. You are to practice these things. What things? The things that you have learned, the things you have received, the things that you have heard, and the things that you have seen in me. Again, Paul swings right back around to what Tom was saying and says, listen, I'm not writing these things from some like ivory tower of theological theory. I'm writing these things as real life experience. You have received instruction from me. You have observed these things. Practice these things. So what I want to do in response, and we'll wrap it up in this, is to go back to verse 6. Verse 6 and 7, in my estimation, are the money inside these verses. Paul just doesn't drop that command, do not be anxious, just in thin air. He was rooting this command, do not be anxious, in all kinds of awesome gospel truth. The command to do not be anxious is rooted in this world of rejoicing. It's rooted in this world of being gentle to everyone that you know. It's Rooted in this truth that the Lord is at hand. Yes, the Lord is at hand, so I'm spurred on. I want to not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. He's also with me. He knows what's going on. He knows my ins. He knows my outs. He knows my thoughts. He knows my actions. This is good for me because that means when things go awry in my life, Jesus isn't wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do with me. No, the Lord is at hand, and he knows what's going on, so I can not be anxious about anything. I can let my requests be made known to God. I can pray. I can offer up prayer. I can walk in thanksgiving. And I can bide in the promise that the peace of God will guard my heart and my mind because of me being in Christ Jesus. See, we are finite creatures. We don't know everything. And as such, as finite creatures, we have limited ability to know our world and to know our lives. The uncertainty of our future gives us cause to worry. How many of you are worrying about the bill that you have to pay but not have enough money? How many of you are worrying about the sickness that's in your family? How many of you are worrying about the argument that's going on in your house? The kid who's going nuts? The boss who's breathing down your neck? The workload that seems to amount to more than you could ever do in an infinity of lifetimes? The amount of emails that are there? The amount of job the amount of the amount of... Da-da-da-da-da. The reason why anxiety comes in and latches on with an iron grip is because we're finite creatures. We stand here on the precipice of today and we look out toward the future and go, I have no clue what's going on out there. I'm clueless. I know the past I can tell you what I'm doing right now, but when you turn to the future and you look out there and go, I am finite. I don't know what is going on out here. I don't know what's going to happen in this situation. But see, the good news is in our finiteness, there is one who is infinite, he is infinite. It is God. God stands outside of time. God looks to the past, knows everything. God looks to the present, knows everything. But where we have to stop, God rules and reigns. God is infinite. He's sovereign. He knows all things. See, the uncertainty of our future gives us cause to worry. We get a sweaty soul, a nervous soul. We are anxious A nervous soul finds its home in its inability to know how things are going to turn out. And this all takes part in our minds and in our hearts, the seat of our inner life. Our hearts and our minds, if unchecked, have the tendency to grab the unknowns and churn them in a spin cycle of anxiety. Am I I preaching to myself up here? I stand here on the edge going, I don't know what's gonna happen. Then my inner life, my heart, my mind freak out, and they grab onto this thing, and it's like, Z-Z-Z-Z. I'm just like, ah, and you just get all sweaty and you're freaking out. Like, what am I gonna die? And next thing you know, you're crying in the corner, sucking your thumb because you're like, I don't know how I'm gonna. That's anxiety. Now I've made light of it, but some of us are gripped by anxiety to the point where like you want to die because you don't know what's coming. And you would rather not have to think and face and worry about these things in the now, so you just want to get out of it now. And Paul says, no. See, the opposite of anxiety is peace. Peace. Peace of soul. The peace of God ruling and reigning in your life. Coming from the God of peace, as Paul says in 4 verse 9. The opposite of anxiety is peace. Listen, friends, please. Peace comes when we pray because prayer is an expression of trust in God. See, when we stand on the precipice right here of the present and we look out to the future and we go, I'm finite. I have no clue how this is going to turn out. Like there is an infinite amount of things. I don't know how it's going to turn out. So what do you do in this moment? You've got two options. You freak out, run to the corner, cry and suck your thumb, or... You bend your knee in prayer going, where my finiteness limits me in this area, I look to the one who is infinite and sovereign, who knows exactly how these things are going to work out. So whether it's what I expect or whether it's what I don't expect, because I am in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 tells me God is working all things for my good, so what I'm going to do is bend my knee and pray to the one who knows what's going on in that situation, the situation that's freaking me out right now. You see how this works? Prayer brings peace to our soul now because it's acknowledging I'm finite, I don't know what's going on. You're infinite, you know what's going on. So, you, God, I'm confessing to you your godliness, your sovereignty, your holiness, your goodness, your greatness, your grandness over all things. And it's me bending my knee and saying, I am not you. You lead me, you speak into my life, you guide me, you march me along. Prayer confesses, I don't know what lies ahead, but God does. Therefore, I will pray as an expression of trust in the full assurance that God is in control. And the promise that comes, beautiful promise, is this, like a century guarding my heart and mind, the peace of God that comes from knowing God knows all my needs and wants, etc., fends off the attack of anxiety. Through prayer, anxiety is expelled, joy reigns. It's like this. It's this picture. This is exactly what Paul is saying. You have an inner thought life called your heart and called your mind. Your heart and your mind are prone to wander towards these things that we don't know what's going on. Paul says at the door, at the gate of your heart and mind, there is a guard, a sentry, a guy ripped, buffed out like the guard, like the watcher in Thor, the big guy who stands there at the Bifrost, Big double-edged sword, like ah, just standing there like this, man, like ready just to take on anything that comes through the bifrost. Like that kind of guy is standing at the door of your inner heart, your inner mind, your thought life. And as your inner thought life begins to wander towards the things you have no clue about, this guard sees anxiety coming because anxiety says, I want to be where this guy's freaking out, and he's trying to run into your inner heart and your inner mind. And what happens? The peace of God, like a sentry, takes that double-edged sword and like ah, Cuts down anxiety. He's a guard. It's a promise that we can rest because we have peace with God. We can have peace here on the horizontal, and that peace of God, like a century, guards our hearts and minds. And we live in that world when we go, God, freaking out, don't know what's going on. I'm praying to you. God, thank you that you know what's going on. And then that peace of God century, I mean, he's just like, ah, yes. Like it emboldens him, he stands there ready to defend your heart and mind. So when anxiety tries to creep in, going, man, can I get in there? Can I get in that heart? Can I get in that mind? He says, no, cuts it down. Promise. That's a promise. So when you hear that your boss says you're not making enough money for the company and need to cut your salary, when the doctor says we need to run some more tests just to make sure, I don't like what I'm seeing on the result. When your spouse comes and says, well, things aren't going really well, we we need to have a really heart-to-heart conversation. When your roommate comes and says, we need to have a conversation, things aren't working out with this living situation. Those are recipes for instant anxiety. The how am I's start to creep in. Well, how am I going to pay my rent, and how am I going to cover insurance, and how am I going to buy food, and how am I going to pay my bills, and how am I going to tell my wife, and how am I going to find another place? The The how am I's creep in what do you do in that moment you recognize anxiety is killing joy you bend your knee and go god i have no clue what's going on in this thing but you do and in that moment you've just taken the sword and you have just laid waste to anxiety with prayer and joy let me leave you with a sentence this is hope god's peace will stand guard over the hearts and minds of those who are in union with christ jesus see there's the beauty of this this isn't happening because you're so awesome Right, this promise isn't rooted in because you're you. Of course, God's peace would guard my heart and mind. I'm me. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, God's peace guards your heart and mind because what? Verse eight or verse seven? In verse seven, because you're in Christ Jesus. That's the good news for those those of us who are believers. This is a promise for believers. This is good news for believers. So those of you who are believers in this place, who are dealing with anxiety over life, trust and rest in this good promise. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you would take these words, that you would apply them liberally to our hearts and our minds. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to freak out. We're prone to run in all directions but the one direction that will bring us peace. Peace rooted in God because we are rooted in Christ Jesus. God, help us, lead us, guide us. Father, we confess we often don't think this way. Help us. We as your children need your help, Father. In Christ's name I pray.